Well, this morning we conclude our hero series, and just a reminder what the series is about, we live in a world and a culture surrounded by heroes, and my guess is you have your heroes. We look to heroes as those with special abilities, special talents, special powers. They're extraordinary people that can do extraordinary things. Well, the Bible has heroes too, but the Bible's heroes are different. In the Bible, the heroes are flawed. They're finite. They don't really have special abilities. They're in touch with their fallenness. They're in touch with their flaws. But God somehow uses them graciously to accomplish extraordinary things. Well, we've been looking at a number of heroes in the Old Testament. And whether or not you knew this, we were kind of slipping into the series helpful hints on how to read the Bible. Because when you read about the heroes of the Bible, they're not really calling attention to themselves. They're really pointing to the ultimate hero, to Jesus. As I was thinking about that this past week, I was reminded of a good introduction to a talk, a good introduction to a sermon only does two things. It gets attention. When the speaker gets up to speak, you know, how many people are there? If there are 500 people, their minds are in 500 different places. The speaker then gets attention, secondly, focuses attention. That's what the heroes of the Bible do. They do crazy things that get our attention, but they don't focus our attention on them. They point and focus our attention to something greater. Well, I thought we would end the series. Rather than looking at another hero and try to figure out how to do that, I thought we would look at a sermon that Jesus preached, and in the sermon... He looks at two heroes from the Old Testament, and he explains what they do and how they do it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. If you use a phone, iPad, whatever you use, turn to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to read the first sermon that Luke records. Not the first sermon Jesus preached, but in Luke's gospel, he takes this message and puts it right at the front, because in this sermon... Jesus helps us understand who he is and what he came to do. And he uses two Old Testament heroes to help us understand that. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 30, and then we'll come back and play with the sermon, the response, etc. Well, here we go, Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal thyself, and, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land so that Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Boy, talk about a turning this way and that way. All right, well, here's what's going on. The sermon. First sermon that Luke records. Jesus is in a synagogue, we're told, as was his custom. And uh, since Jesus is kind of making a name for himself, I guess the people in the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue, they wanted him to say something. So they hand him the Isaiah scroll. And Isaiah scroll is a long scroll, right? If you've ever read Isaiah, 66 chapters. So Jesus um, takes the scroll and he scrolls through it. Not random access, like a book. You got to scroll through to get the chapter 61. And then Jesus reads the text. Here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You have to remember, Jesus reads this passage in his hometown. Not a giant city like New York, not even a big town like Southern or Prairie. I mean, we're talking a little tiny town. In a little tiny town, everybody knew everybody, and everybody knew everybody else's business. I grew up in Philadelphia, which is not a little town, but the little town that we grew up in, my grandmother kept vigil at her bedroom window, and she knew everybody's business on the block. And when she would come over, she would say, boy, did you see what time Bob got home last night? They must be having a flight because she stormed out at 2 a.m. And the kids, they didn't come home at all last night. A little tiny town, everybody knows everybody's business. Jesus getting a name for himself. He goes in, he unrolls a scroll and reads those words. Now, the audience, you know, the listeners in the synagogue that day, probably a small group, they were familiar with Isaiah. Notice, though, Jesus chooses from the second half of Isaiah. He chooses what's become known as a servant song. Now, just a little uh, help in understanding Isaiah. Isaiah kind of opens in half. Not, not exactly 50-50, but you know, there's a first half, which is longer than a second half. The first half has the Messiah presented as the coming king. So we like a lot of uh, Isaiah, the early part of Isaiah, as Christmas verses, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? Uh, the second half of Isaiah presents the coming Messiah as the suffering servant. And a lot of people thought, well, there must be two messiahs then. Because how in the world can a conquering king and a suffering servant be the same guy well, of course, the people, they emphasize the conquering king part, not the suffering servant part. Jesus chooses to read the second part, and he reads about the Spirit of the Lord coming to set these people free. Now, let me just ask. If you're in Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, 
And somebody from the community gets up and reads about setting prisoners free and the oppressed being liberated and the poor being delivered. And they were promises to God's people. Who immediately would you think is being referenced? Well, you are, right? You're God's people. You believe God's word. And you've got this little grid in your mind. The grid is, we're the good guys. We go to synagogue. We're the good guys. We know God's story. We try to follow his plan. Yeah, we trip up every once in a while. But we're the people on God's side. We're God's people. And those promises are for God's people. Those that are in prison will be set free. Those that are oppressed are going to be delivered. Those that are poor are going to be given great wealth. Those verses are for us, especially because we're under the thumb of Rome. The Romans are oppressing us. The Romans are treating us like prisoners. We have nothing. We're eking out an existence here. So everybody in that Nazareth synagogue thought when Jesus read, he's referring to them being delivered. And then Jesus preaches an eight-word sermon. Here's the whole sermon. Unrolls the scroll, reads the verses, rolls it back up, hands the attendant, sits down. That was the way they did it. I always liked that. You stand up to read God's word. You sit down when you're talking. Jesus sits down, and here's the whole sermon. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Sermon's over. Um, now, if you didn't read the whole text, if we didn't work through it just a few minutes ago, let me just ask you, what do you think the response would have been? Right, they would have laughed, right? Who the heck does he think this? And, and we see some of that in the response. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't like he the carpenter? Like, we know this kid, right? He even says, yeah, some of you are going to say, heal thyself. That's not saying you can do it. They're saying, wait a minute. Fix yourself before you're coming to fix somebody else. So they're really not believing him, right? But the response is not one of doubt. The response is not one of anger. Here's the response. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came. They loved this sermon. Why did they love it? Probably it took less than three seconds. That's probably the main reason, right? I mean, if you had a three-second sermon, you'd love it, right? Um, why did, well, because they saw themselves as being oppressed. And yeah, we don't believe Jesus is really the Messiah, but it's good to be reminded of God's promise. Deliverance is coming and Messiah is coming and yeah, Jesus is a little weird. He thinks he may be the one, but remember the grid? We're the good guys. God's promises for the good guys. God still remembers, right? They are amazed and they praise him for the sermon. That means that Jesus isn't done yet. Since they are amazed at the sermon and they're praising him, he realizes they don't understand. So at that point, he gives them two illustrations, two heroes from the Old Testament to make sure they get it. You know, I preach enough sermons to know most of you could care less about, you know, the exegesis and the exposition, but when a story gets told, you're engaged, right? Something's going on, you know, we're working through a text, the preacher's up here doing this, or maybe you listen online. Yeah, it's just kind of wow, 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 wow. Going but then the guy says, now let me tell you a story. Oh, you, oh, yes, we're ready now. Well, Jesus tells two stories. He has everybody's attention. Well, before we look at the stories, Let's look at the response after the illustrations. Remember the first one? They're all amazed and they praise him after the sermon. 
What happens after the illustrations? Look at the response now. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off. After the illustrations, they wanted to kill him. I preached a lot of really bad sermons. You don't have to shake your head yes and say amen, right? But I haven't had death threats on the way out. Like, I don't get text messages, don't come back next week, we're going to kill you. Right? Um, Jesus gives the illustrations, they're going to kill him. What the heck is in the illustrations? What are the examples? Well, here they are. The first example is of Elijah. Now, Josh helped us understand a little bit about Elijah from 1 Kings 18. We're going to look at chapter 17 briefly, and we're not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you the story we're going to look at Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Now, here's what happens. Let me read kind of the, the pinnacle verse, and then I'll explain the story. She went away. So here's the widow of Zarephath. We don't even know her name, right? The widow of Zarephath, she comes. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. Yeah, that's the end of the story. But let me tell you the story. Ahab and Jezebel are running the northern kingdom. Two more demonic rulers have not been around, right? Now, a helpful hint to the story, Jezebel comes from Sidon. Zarephath is in Sidon. Because of their idolatry and because of the wickedness, God has sent famine to the land. We read that in three and a half years, no water, right? Well, if there's no water, that means there's no plant. There's nothing to eat, right? Their people are starving. God says to Elijah, hey, Elijah, I don't want you to die in a famine. I'm going to protect you, kind of like prophet protection program, right? But notice, leave the Holy Land, leave Israel, and go to Sidon. Sidon's the capital of Baal worship right? Jezebel is a Baal worshiper. She's killing the prophets of God. She's protecting the prophets of Baal. God says to his prophet, go to Sidon, the capital of Baal worship, and I'm going to protect you there. You're going to meet a widow. Ask the widow for a drink and something to eat. So he goes, and just like God says, now he's in Zarephath. He's in Sidon. He's in enemy territory away from God. And, and here's the picture. God's voice, the prophet, God's word, has been taken from his people because of their idolatry and sin. He has now moved the prophet to Sidon. The widow comes out of town and Elijah says, hey, it's kind of like a divine appointment. God told me to come here. Would, would you give me a drink? And so the woman leaves. She's going to get him a drink. And as she's walking away, Elijah says, oh, oh, by the way, would you bring me a, you know, a piece of bread to eat? I don't have anything to eat either. At that, the woman almost loses it. And she says, yeah, I may be able to find a little water for you, but you don't understand. I'm a widow. I don't have a husband. All I've got is enough flour to make one little cake and enough oil to cook that one little cake. And my plan is I'm going to go home. I'm going to take the flour and I'm going to make one little cake for my son and me, 
We're going to eat it, and then we're going to die because we have nothing else, and no one else does either. Elijah has the audacity to say, okay, yeah, that, that's kind of an interesting plan, but before you make the little cake for yourself, make me one and bring it back to me. Who does he think he is? Right? Make me a cake. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you do? If I had enough flour for one little cake and I'm home with one of my kids and here's this prophet, this weird guy from another country, and he says, well, before you make your cake, you make me one. Oh, yeah, and by the way, if you do, God will supply your need. Yeah, here's what I would say. Uh, I want God to go first. Isn't that what you would say? That's what I want to say. When God says, okay, here's what I want you to do, and then I will. I always want to say, okay, well, you go first. So if I'm the woman, I would have said, okay, if I go home and all of a sudden the flour bin is filled to overflowing, I'll make him a cake. But if I go home and I barely have a handful of flour, I'm not going to make a cake for this prophet that I don't even know, and then I have nothing to eat. God, you go first. He rarely goes first, doesn't he? He says, uh, you stored what you have. You do what I say. Because that's where faith comes in. That's where trust lives. And I want that to grow. I was thinking about that as Josh and Chad were talking about giving opportunities. And I was smiling, thinking to myself, I wonder how many people, either online in Quakertown here inside, I wonder how many are thinking, okay, God, well, I don't have too much. You go first. I think that lottery is about 1.9 billion now. When I hit that, I'll give God a really big gift. I'll buy Thanksgiving dinner for everybody by myself. God, you go first. God says, uh, you go first. You show your faith. You show your trust. You may be sitting here that I don't have hardly anything. What can I give? God says, you go first. You go first. You show your trust and faith and you watch me but you go first. Well, here's how the story ends. The woman goes home, and amazingly, this amazes me, she makes Elijah a cake, brings it back, gives him the cake, goes home, but rather than finding an empty flour bin, she finds it filled, and she has enough for Elijah, herself, and her family through the duration of the famine. God comes through. Now, why do you think the people in the synagogue were ticked off? Well, Jesus kind of teased that up, doesn't he? Here's what he says. There were lots of starving widows in Israel back then, but God sent the prophet to a starving pagan woman in Sidon, a widow who had nothing. God came alongside an idol-worshipping pagan widow. And God saved his prophet as she trusted in God and what God said. Huh. So maybe all that stuff that he read from Isaiah 61, maybe that's not all just for us Jews. Like maybe the oppressed and the poor. And all, maybe other people are included in that. We don't like that message. Huh. Illustration number one. Well, here's illustration number two. Elisha, that's not a misspelling, that, that's another guy. Elijah was kind of the mentor. Elisha is the mentee. 
he picks up after Elijah's kind of finished his ministry. And we've got another incident that Jesus referenced. Here's another hero, right? So Elijah isn't really pointing to himself, just like a good intro. He's getting our attention and focusing our attention on something the ultimate hero is going to do. He's going to bring God's word, bring God's provision, bring all of this goodness that God does, but not just for Jewish people, for everybody. That doesn't sound right. Well, how about Elisha? Uh, Here's the tip of the iceberg in the Elisha story. So he went down. This is Naaman, Naaman the Syrian. We'll talk about him in a minute. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times. What the heck's that about? We'll see. As the man of God had told him, his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Now, what the heck is that story about? And here's that story. Naaman is the general of the Syrian army. I mean, Naaman has has everything you could imagine. He's super wealthy. He's got a reputation. The king listens to him. He's kind of like the prime minister. He's got servants. He's got everything you could imagine. Naaman has it all. But Naaman has leprosy. You know what? If you have it all and you have leprosy, you've got nothing. Now, leprosy was kind of a cruel disease. And... uh, The reason leprosy would make someone an outsider is because that leprosy was kind of a disease that ate away at your skin. And eventually you'd become so grotesque looking that people didn't want to look at you. And leprosy was also contagious. So you would be sentenced to go outside the town, outside the city. They didn't want anybody near you. They want to look at you and they didn't want to catch it. So Naaman, the ultimate insider, knows he's becoming an outsider. And he's going to die a wretched death. His body parts fall off and it's going to be disgusting. Well, we also know that Naaman as a Syrian general would often go on raids. He would go to other parts of, of the world and he would kill people. And one of the things that they would do on these raids, they would take the younger children and bring the children back as servants. Oh yeah, Naaman has a young servant girl from Israel. Well, you don't have to read too much between the lines to realize. Either Naaman himself or at his order had her parents killed and he took her home as a servant girl. Now the servant girl is uh, watching Naaman begin to deteriorate. He knows he has leprosy. He's, he's got everything, but he's got leprosy. Now, can I just say, put yourself into the shoes of that servant girl. If the guy who killed your parents and took you as a slave is wasting away from leprosy, would you want to help that guy out? I'd be saying, oh, you lost an ear today. Yes. Nose tomorrow, baby. Yeah. I'll pat you on the back and see if an arm falls off, right? I mean, I would be praying for this to happen quickly. But rather than that, the little slave girl says to Naaman, the Syrian general who was responsible for his parents, that she says, Mr. Naaman, there's help even for people like you in Israel. Go see the prophet 
in Israel. Well, Naaman's at the end of his rope, so he goes. He gets a letter from his king. He takes all the gold he can muster, all the silver, all the you know, latest fashions. He's got a big caravan, and he's off to Israel. Um, now, here's the point. You know, the Bible often uses physical, you know, outside ailments and problems to highlight inside problems. And we know that is Naaman's case. Naaman has leprosy of the body, and that's one thing. But we also learn in the account that Naaman has leprosy in his heart, and that's an eternal problem. We know he's got leprosy in his heart because of what happens all the way through the story. Naaman's leprosy in his heart is called pride, self-sufficiency, right? Arrogance. He's got everything you can imagine, but he's got leprosy, so therefore he is nothing. And what does God do in the story time and time and time again? God humbles him, humbles him, humbles him. A little slave girl tells him how to be cured. He leaves, goes to the king of Israel, and the king says, oh my goodness, I can't do anything for you. Why are you coming to me? Does your king want to cause a fight? He shut out. Elisha then sends a message, have him come to my house. He shows up at Elisha's house. Now, put yourself into that scene. A giant caravan is out there. The general of the Syrian army is right outside your door. You know he's got riches, all the, you know, there's pageantry, there's lots of people there, they're in uniform, he's carrying gold, he's got all these um, clothes that are with him, he's coming to give gifts. Wouldn't you run to the door? You're hoping to get some of that? You know what Elisha does? When he knocks at the door, Elisha doesn't even answer. He sends a, go find out what he wants. Now, if you're naming, you're ticked, right? And he is. Who does this measly prophet living in this little hut? Who does he think he is? I show he doesn't even come to the door. And then through the messenger, Elisha says, tell Naaman if he wants to be healed to go take a flying leap into the Jordan River. Not once, seven times. Naaman is so angry. He packs up and he's headed home and he said, who does he think he is? I'm a great man. I can do great things. I came to pay for my help. I came to pay the doctor's bill. I've come with all of these soldiers. I will go and fight somebody. All I've got to do is bathe in a river. We've got better rivers back in Syria. His own servants say, hey boss, if he would have asked you to do some big thing, you would have done it, right? He just said, go jump in the river. Like, well, what have you got to lose, right? You're dying here. So he caves, and he takes a flying leap into the Jordan River. One time, two times, nothing. Three times, nothing. Four, he said seven times, right? Six times. And as he came up the seventh time, Look what it says. His flesh was restored and became clean, just like a young boy. Did you see the humbling after humbling? A little slave girl told him where to go. Elisha, the prophet, doesn't even answer the door. He tells him to jump into a river. That's the answer. His own servants have to convince him. Pride's the leprosy. God's healing the internal problem as he's healing the external problem. What do you think the people in Nazareth are thinking? Huh, so who are oppressed and who needs healing and who's in poverty and who needs to be delivered? I thought that was, but God 
delivers a widow, a nobody female from, you know, Baal country, and God heals a Syrian general who was left. There were lots of lepers in Israel that didn't get healed. God hears that. What? Who is this Jesus? He can't be bringing God's word. Those words, that promise given to us, not to everybody. Remember? Get attention. Don't you think Elijah and Elisha got attention when he were doing this stuff? But they're not focusing attention on themselves. They're focusing attention on the ultimate hero, the servant of God, the king of kings. Well, let's tease out the lessons to kind of make it pointed. Hey, here's the first one. The good news is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews in Nazareth. It's for the widows in Sidon. It's for the lepers of those that are connected. Think about what Jesus does in the sermon. He gives us two ends of the continuum, doesn't he? On one end, we have the woman. She's an idolater. She's a widow. She's a woman in a very patriarchal world. She doesn't have enough to live herself. She is in extreme poverty. She's going to make a little cracker for her son and she's going to die. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got Naaman. He's as respected and connected and networked and wealthy as you can be. He's got the king's ear. He asked the king for a letter. The king sends a letter to the king of Israel to make this thing happen. He's got every, oh yeah, but he's got leprosy. But their circumstances are opposite end of the continuum. What's Jesus doing? He's saying the gospel's for everybody. For the extreme on this side and that side and everybody in between. The gospel's for everybody. Here's the second lesson. The gospel's for the hopeless and helpless. You know, they're both hopeless and helpless. Naaman's not poor. Naaman's not wondering where his next meal's coming from. Naaman's not starving to death. Naaman has leprosy. One is extremely wealthy, one's in poverty, but they're, but they're both in touch with their hopelessness and helplessness. The gospel's only for people that are hopeless and helpless. Isn't that Naaman's whole journey? If you think you've got the solution, if you think you can merit, if you can make it yourself, if you can pay your own way, God says, well, yeah, yeah, you can't come. You don't have the right ticket. There's only one thing you and I can bring to get God's everything. And that one thing is nothing. But nothing is the hardest thing to bring, isn't it? Like, we want to bring our reputation. We want to bring our marriage. We want to bring our family. We want to bring our prayers. We want to bring our righteousness. We want to bring our church attendance. We want to bring our Bible memory. We're going to bring, we always want to bring something. Well, you're bringing stuff. You can't come. You bring something, you get nothing. You bring nothing, you get God's everything. If Naaman would have stayed trusting in all his stuff, he would have gone home and died of leprosy. He's in touch with his hopelessness and helplessness. And he goes home with a healed body and a healed heart. The gospel's for everybody. But only for those that know they're hopeless and helpless. You can't do this yourself. And the third lesson. Boy, that's a countercultural, counterintuitive, offensive message, isn't it? What do you mean I can't do it? What do you mean? We live in a culture, we live in a world that says, the solution to your problem is inside of you. Just search your, no, no, that's the problem. Our culture says, the problem is out here. 
The solution is in here. The Bible says, no, no, no. The problem's in here. The solution is outside as God sends his son to take care of the problems. So are you following the cultural message that the problems are all out here and the solution's in here? Are you following the gospel message that the real problem's in here and the solution's out here that God sends the servant who is actually the king? Can you understand why? After the illustrations, the congregation in Nazareth are so ticked off. They thought the promises were just exclusively for them. They didn't want any Gentiles in this deal. They felt like they were oppressed. They felt like they were poor. And they were to some extent. But God includes everybody in this deal. Remember I said, Luke puts this sermon first to help us understand who Jesus is. He's the servant of God who is also the king. And Jesus' sermon shows us what he came to do. He came to bring healing on the outside and healing on the inside. He came to bring a feast that will last forever on the outside. And he came to give you all you need to feed on, on the inside. And that message isn't something that's proclaimed to everybody. That message is disseminated through people like the widow, people like Naaman, whose lives have been changed and they impact and infect others. Connect and impact. That's how it works. Our lives should be getting people's attention and fo focusing their attention not on us, focusing their attention just like Naaman, just like the widow, just like Elijah and Elisha, focusing their attention on Jesus, the real solution to their problem. And if that grips you, you're more than motivated and encouraged to go and share it because this is a grace deal. This is not something you got to clean up your act to get. You just, have to, you just have to acknowledge the truth and run to Jesus as the solution. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this sermon that Jesus preached. And we're even thankful for the illustrations. They may not anger us the way they angered Jesus' first audience. But yet the point of it still strikes us and causes us to be a little disturbed. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand that our role is to get attention and focus attention, not on ourselves or our scheme, focusing attention on the servant, the king, who came to bring healing forever. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.